So what really happened when Jesus came to earth? You know, a lot of times we'll talk even at our church about whether or not the message of Jesus is true. But in this series, we're asking a different question. Not only is it true, but has Christianity been good for history? There's kind of a narrative that's going through the culture right now that says that Christianity has been uh, an impedance to progress, an impedance to goodwill, an impedance to the good things that we've come to value today. We're going back in history in this series and asking ourselves, what if Jesus was never born? Like Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful Life, would other things begin to unravel that we wouldn't necessarily realize? We've discovered a lot of things would. So a lot of things were impacted because of what happened in that manger 2,000 years ago. Society is better because of it. Well, today I want to begin by looking at just how we celebrate Christmas. Like most of us think about Christmas and the Christmas spirit. It's a time to be joyful. It's a time to give back. It's a time to really think about people less fortunate than yourself. But really, that was not true as a normal Western culture, people didn't decorate trees most of the time. They didn't send out cards most of the time. They didn't look for people to give to most of the time until about 1843. The man who truly invented Christmas the way we think of it today is Charles Dickens. Even in London back in the 1840s, in general, it was thought of mostly as a pagan holiday. I mean, they knew about Christmas, but it wasn't a major celebration, and people didn't really think a lot about how to give to the less fortunate. But the man who invented Christmas, Charles Dickens, was trying to put together a new novel. And he was kind of up against a deadline, and he's writing to the last possible minute, and he wrote this story called A Christmas Carol. A strange tale that involved happy ghosts for the first time. In fact, I remember I was in a Christmas carol as an actor. I got to play the Ghosts of Christmas present. I remember dancing around with my, my own little Scrooge, uh, Bobby Reese from high school. And I remember dancing around with this ridiculous green outfit and this wreath around me, and I was playing the happy ghost. What a weird thing, a happy ghost. And yet the transformation of that story turned London and then Western civilization upside down as people began to think about their own life and began to think about what it means to keep Christmas well, to not be like Ebenezer Scrooge, to be haunted by your past, by, by your business partner with his change forged in this life, to look at your past, the things you've done you weren't proud of, your present, your current reality, what the future would hold if you didn't make changes. And yet, Charles Dickens was a follower of Jesus, and what he wrote in all of his stories he says he got from the New Testament, and even the story of a Christmas carol was designed to be a, a, a story, an analogy of Christian conversion. Here's what he says about his writing. Charles Dickens says, With a deep sense of my great responsibility always upon me when I exercise my art, one of my most constant endeavors has been to exhibit in all my good people some faint reflections of the teachings of our great master. All of my strongest illustrations are derived from the New Testament, and all my social abuses are shown as departures from its spirit. In fact, there's a movie that came out a few years ago called The Man Who Invented Christmas, all about Charles Dickens. That everything we think of as normal about celebrating the Christmas spirit and thinking about Tiny Tims and Bob Cratchits in our life and how to celebrate them, it's because a Christian man took the message of Christmas and popularized it in such a way that you and I would think about Christmas differently in a culture 200 years later. To recapture what was in that manger 2,000 years ago. 
So I want to give you four reasons why Christmas matters today and how it really impacted how we think about culture, how we think about compassion, how we think about generosity, how we think about caring for others in the form of both medicine and compassion. You see, the kindness and care that was shown in the manger inspired kindness and care in the name of the manger all through history in the name of compassion and medicine. Here's a short little verse to summarize Christmas. The kindness and the love of God our Savior. Toward man appeared. It wasn't here before. Something radical came into being. Sometime around zero to a couple, two B.C., depending on how you time it. Kindness and the love of God appeared. It wasn't by works we do, but it was by the mercy of God that he saved us. He rescued us. He brought some new way of thinking into our life. So what are four reasons why Christmas matters and how it transformed the world and how it might transform our hearts as well? Well, number one, the kindness and care of Christmas. Christmas matters because it brought compassion to the Roman Empire. Now, this is no easy feat. To understand, to bring compassion anywhere is hard, but to bring it to the Roman Empire that in no way valued victimization, no way valued compassion, this was radical stuff. And yet, sometime around 30 AD, the Roman Empire starts being unwound into something totally different because of Christianity. Now, don't take my word for it. In case you've been interested in this series, let me give you three books you might be interested in. One is called, What If Jesus Was Never Born? Written by a a Presbyterian minister by the name of James Kennedy. Lots of facts and figures on that if you want to go deeper into the subject. Another is a sociologist and historian by the name of Rodney Stark. He's written several books, one of which is The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Western Civilization. But the one I've been reading for the last year, it's been fascinating, is this one called Dominion. It's written by Tom Holland. Not Spider-Man Tom Holland, different Tom Holland. This Tom Holland is the world's current expert on the Roman Empire. He's an atheist, not a follower of Jesus, not a follower of a Christian, but a, a, a deep historian. And he loved the Roman Empire. He said he grew up, he loved Tyrannosaurus Rexes fighting each other back and forth. He, he'd go to church and hear about Jesus and just be bored out of his mind. He loved the, the, the brutality of Rome. But as he began to see himself as both an atheist and a progressive uh, politician, uh, as far as his leanings, he's not a politician, but his leanings politically, he said, where did the ideas of the things I care about, love, compassion, poor, health care, uh, elevation of women, elevation of children, And so someone challenged him to find out where his values came from. Did they really come from the Enlightenment or not? As he began to examine the Roman Empire, he was shocked by reading actual writings from the actual Romans of their attitudes toward people and compassion. He said, as much as I liked it from a distance, when I got up close to it, I realized it was almost foreign how brutal the Roman Empire was. And I began to realize that It wasn't the Enlightenment centuries later. It was Christianity in the first century that everything I hold true, as an atheist, I trace back to the impact of Jesus, compassion and care and health care and women's rights and abolition of slavery. This is not some Christian minister saying this. This is an atheist saying this in his book. And he tracks the journey through Rome of how Christianity shaped the Roman world for the good. In fact, here's just an example. Here's a casual note found between a man and his wife 
about how they valued babies and women during that time. It's a casual note. Hey, honey. Hey, now that I'm still in Alexandria, and do not worry if they all come back, I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son, and as soon as I receive payment, I will send it to you. If you are delivered of your child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. Uh, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. Just a casual line. This is how babies were valued in those days. This is how women were valued in those days. This, it's not even shocking. Not even an explanation. Just common part of the caste system of Rome. Every time you had a child, you were dividing your income by another half or another third. And so you thought about it. And so there were piles and piles of children outside of the city gates because you just discard them, especially if they're women. In fact, one historian says that prior to Christianity, there is no trace of any charitable organization found in history. Prior to Christianity. The organized idea of charity and giving and compassion was unique to springing up at the same time Christianity did. It's not to say there might not have been pockets of it, but he couldn't find a trace of an organized example of it. Another historian said it this way. He said, in Rome, no one gives anything to anyone. Wow. No one gives away anything to anyone if they can help it. Why does he say that? Because charity found very little scope in the frugal life. Hospitality survived as a mutual convenience at a time when inns were poor and far between. But in sympathetic Paulbius, he says, no one gives anything to anyone in Rome. So this idea of hospitality and caring for the stranger and caring for the poor, this was unique to Christianity. Christianity turned and brought compassion to the Roman Empire. But more than that, it brought this upside-down kingdom. It began to put a new kingdom into every heart of people who gave over to or believed in Christianity. It's this priority rearranging kingdom. I mean, contrast what we just heard about if you've got a girl, discard it, with the message of Christmas. What happens? God appears to a woman, a teenage girl, and talks about how valuable her baby is. What's it say? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! You are a highly favored one. Talk about esteeming women. Of all the people in the world, God appeared to a young teenage girl and said, The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, God's with you. He goes on, he says, To you, God has appeared. You have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. He shall, his name will be Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him a throne. It's a kingdom he's coming with. And this kingdom is going to come like all kingdoms come, with new priorities, new administration, come with new values and new systems. And that kingdom, it's going to reign in people. It's going to transform people. It's going to rearrange how they think and how they prioritize. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. And as you trace Christianity as it touches every continent, the handicapped are esteemed, slaves are freed, women are exalted through every place of history because this kingdom, when it's planted in somebody, doesn't just get people to heaven, it brings heaven to earth. Maybe you grew up in church listening to the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It was this kingdom rearranging priority. As Jesus comes, begins to teach for three years, and one of the most startling things he does, he tells a story. It's the third reason Christmas matters. He tells a story that says, I'm going to elevate kindness to a stranger, because when you're kind to a stranger, 
you're actually kind to God. Now, every person you interact with, every person you love, every person you care for, enemy, friend, political dissident, people you don't agree with, every person you're kind to is a way that you can be kind to God himself. He tells a story, and it is a radically political story. As I said in the series, there's no politics in the series. But this story would have been heard so political. We know it as the Good Samaritan. Be a good Samaritan. Be a good person. But let me offend everybody real quick. If, if Jesus had come to the DNC, he would have told the story this way. Once upon a time, there was an undocumented worker who got ambushed. And Joe Biden came by, and he saw this undocumented worker who had been ambushed. And he just was too busy to get to a meeting, so he left him there to die. But next came by was Kamala Harris, and she saw this undocumented worker who was there and been ambushed. And, and she says, oh, I really got to get to a meeting. I got a speech I got to give. And then Donald Trump showed up. And Donald Trump saw this undocumented worker. And he got down, he cared for him. And he put him on his donkey, and he brought him to a hospital, and he paid for him, and he cared for him. Who is the good neighbor? The moral of the story is go and be a good Don. Now, if he'd been at the RNC, he would have said this. Ronald Reagan was walking down the road. And Ronald Reagan got ambushed by thieves and bandits. And next thing we know, Ron DeSantis came by. And he saw Ronald Reagan there in the ditch. And he said, sorry, I got a speech to give. And he wandered off. Next thing we know, Donald Trump came by and he saw Ronald Reagan being ambushed. And he says, sorry, I got a big rally to get to. And then Barack Obama came by. And he saw Ronald Reagan being beat up, and he said, you know what, i got nothing better to do but to care for Ron. So he came, and he bandaged him, and he took care of him, and he put him in an inn, he paid for his care. And Jesus would say, go and be a good Obama. That is how this story would sound, because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Politically, racially, it was all filled with politics. And Jesus takes this very racially, politically charged story and says, I want to tell you a story about a Samaritan. <gasps> Immediately, everybody was defensive. As he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw, he had compassion on this person who had been ambushed. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and gave him wine. He set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn. He took care of him. And Jesus looked at all the people watching who hated Samaritans and said, Go and do likewise. Then he ups the ante. He says, you see, when you take care of a stranger, somebody you don't like, somebody you disagree with politically or otherwise, when you take in someone who's naked and needs clothing, when you go and visit somebody in prison, I tell you this, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. All of a sudden, this shapes the world. When you visit somebody in prison, you're not just visiting a prisoner, you're visiting God. When you feed the homeless, you're not just feeding the homeless, you're feeding the God who made you. When you care for a stranger, when you show compassion, when you give medical care, you're not just caring for someone, you're actually giving back and saying thanks to the God who made you. And this takes kindness and care and puts it on the top shelf. All of a sudden, kindness and care and compassion and hospitality are a gold platinum standard. No one, no one has ever tried to elevate kindness this hard and this high. That's exactly what happened in Christianity. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Victory of Reason, it traces the expanse of Christianity. His other book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about that in the first century, black plague strikes twice in the Roman Empire. And it was devastating. He said, but was 
just absolutely culture shocking in a Roman caste system where you were important if you were the top of the caste and you were not important if you were the bottom of the caste. It was upper class doctors. It was upper and middle class professionals who had the means to get out of Dodge and get away from the Black Plague, to hide themselves, to protect themselves. Because of Jesus' teaching, and not only his teaching by coming to earth to care for us and adapt himself to us, but because of his resurrection that he had defeated death, that unlike the other world views that said, I only got one life to live, Christianity said, even if I die, I know Jesus defeated death and I'm going into my eternal life. There was upper class doctors, nurses, and professionals who began to care for the sick and the dying in Rome. And not just the rich to the rich, not just the middle class to the middle class, not just Greeks to Greeks, but these Christian doctors began to care for the black plague for Greeks, Romans, Jews, Scavians, slave, free. They turned the whole caste system upside down because they started to treat every single stranger like family. The Romans had never seen anything like this. All of a sudden, these professionals sacrificing or at least risking their life to care for people during the Black Plague, introduced a brand new idea of family, a brand new idea of values, a brand new idea of compassion. And all of a sudden, the poor and the needy begin to be attracted. The slaves begin to be attracted to Christianity because they've never seen anything like this. Twice when the Black Plague hits. Fast forward, let's just take modern-day America. Modern-day meaning 1700s. A guy named Valentine Seaman, he's a, a doctor, and he is so driven as a Christian to try and care for and save lives that he begins to train the, the, the midwives on how to take care and how to, in the maternity, get a higher rate of mortality amongst the women giving birth. And so he trains a whole generation of doctors and nurses as a Quaker to what it means to have compassion, what it means to love, what it means to, to, to better give care to those who are in need. Then the yellow fever breaks out in New York. It's because of his expertise as a doctor, he begins, as a Christian who cares about every life, to trace yellow fever to try and protect it, to kind of keep it from spreading, to try and contain it. He does exactly that. He maps yellow fever in New York, in Manhattan. A Christian physician who just makes a huge impact out of his faith as a Quaker in the 1700s. Black plague, yellow fever. Of course, many of us know the story of Florence Nightingale. Modern nursing wouldn't be what it is today if it hadn't been for her a very devout Christian and follower of Jesus, she began to study the Torah. This was years before germ theory was invented. She began to understand that the Bible's always asking you to wash before you come into God's presence. Wash, 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 wash. Lots of washing. In the washing of the Levar in the Old Testament. Wash, wash, wash. The mikvahs in the New Testament. There's all this washing to come into God's presence. She kind of takes this idea of washing, and before germ theory, she begins introducing the idea of washing your hands before you're doing surgery. Washing your hands before you go into a situation. She begins to go into to, to the, the closest to dying and begins to change their sheets every night, even though it looks like they may not make it. And all of a sudden, wherever Florence Nightingale goes, the mortality rate, all of a sudden, those who are dying drop 40, 50, even 80 percent just because she's changing sheets and washing hands. The time she's mocked is superstitious, but the facts speak for themselves. In fact, simply the idea of washing your hands was thought of as just superstitious nonsense. But in the maternity ward, 40 to 70% of women giving birth are alive today because of the practice she brought in place. 
See, what they didn't know at the time is that most of the teaching hospitals, if you're at a teaching hospital, that just meant there were cadavers on the other side. So you would be working on the cadaver, and someone would say, we got a delivery in room five. And you would go and deliver a baby still with cadaver parts. And so it was actually the doctors that were infecting the nurses, infecting the moms and killing them with these dead particles. Florence Nightingale, who became known as the woman of the light, she would bring the light and she would visit person by person, life by life, showing care and concern. In fact, she was hired by the, the, the British government for the largest healthcare system in the world at the time to help take care of the, the sickness and the death rate amongst their veterans returning from war alive but dying because of infection. And because of her practices, hundreds if not thousands of people survived because of what she put in place. I'll give you another one. This is kind of a crazy one. This guy's name is uh, Simpson Young. So James Simpson Young, he is very concerned that the only kind of way they have to do anesthetics is basically a person comes back from war, they got to saw off the leg or saw off an arm, and they give you a piece of leather to chew on. You know, Arr! you see this in movies. Like, really? That's like, that's... And it was just horrible to watch people who need care and medicine, and he's like, there's got to be a better way. So Sir, Sir James Young Moore is actually studying the book of Genesis, and he's reading this crazy story in Genesis about God making Eve out of Adam. And he notices something. Before God makes Eve... He takes a rib out of Adam. But before he takes a rib out of Adam, he puts him to sleep. And that struck him. Put him to sleep. It's also interesting if you ever want to look up, uh, the rib is the one part of the human body that will actually grow back. If you ever want to look that up, become an interesting piece. But um, he takes the rib out and he goes, you know what, I wonder if, there, if we could do surgeries that would be more humane and more caring. I wonder if there's a way we could put people to sleep before they go in to surgery. Before we have to saw off a leg or fix something. So he and his friends, you can look the story up later, it's just hilarious. He and his friends start to experiment with different chemicals to see if they can find a way to put people into deep sleep so that they could do operations. And so they're messing around one day with different chemicals, and they and their friends are sitting around the table, mixing it up, and they all fall over. They wake up the next morning. Well, that worked. And that was one of the guys who invented chloroform. A guy who was trying to find a humane way to care for people in medicine. Taking a, a little tidbit from the Bible and using it to inspire what he'd used to uh, get modern anesthesia. Now, it was, it was actually formed in several different places, but this is one of the guys who used a little bit of the Bible and his faith in Jesus to manifest that. So, I could probably give you a hundred more stories. Again, i give you three books if you want to look at other stories, but Christianity does, again, several things. It, it, it impacts Rome. It, 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 it changes the priority of everybody. And then thirdly, it, it gives this idea that compassion to others is compassion to God. But there's a fourth reason Christmas matters. Christmas matters because now everybody matters. And the message of Christmas is that every single person matters. Not like the caste system of Rome or Greece, where you can matter if you make it up to this level. No, everybody matters. And it's all over the Christmas story. Uh, I'll give you an example of the shepherds. In the, in the caste system of both, both the Jewish system, they didn't have an official caste system, but the Greeks and Roman system, but everyone looked down on the shepherds. I mean, these are people who take care of sheep. These are the lowest of low in the caste system. And they were in the same country shepherds. Shepherds living in the fields. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them. God's appearing to shepherds and to 14-year-old girls? Yeah. Because in God's kingdom, everybody matters. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the, the angel's talking to them? Them? 
says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for the elite, for the Greeks, for the Jews, to all people. All people matter to God. And you're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And this idea begins to transform the world as now everybody matters. No longer is it slave or free, male or female, rich or poor. Everybody matters in this kingdom of God. So it begins to affect the role of women and children. I'll give you one example, but there's probably hundreds I could give. As the Bible begins to move its way into India, there was a practice called the suti. And the suti is that you were a, a tribesman and you were a polygamist, married to many, many women. Polygamy began to be outlawed because men were abusing women in this practice. So we began to slowly outlaw polygamy and began to honor, um, honoring a man and woman as, a, as, a, as equals. But in the Sutti community, if a tribesman died and he was married to seven or eight women, one of the ways they honored their husband is that though he died and was going to be burned, his body would be burned, they would be standing there being burned alive with him. It gets outlawed by Christianity. Along with many other practices of polygamy and others to honor women, to elevate them, as well as children. How about slavery? You know, often you hear people say, well, the Bible, there's a lot of passages about slavery. The Bible endorses slavery. i got a good friend of mine who's an atheist too, is always kind of pounding me on this. Well, again, Tom Holland, the expert on Rome. No one has ever enslaved more people than Rome. <laughs> I mean, they were the experts on Rome and on, uh, on uh, slavery. And what Tom Holland, the atheist, says is that without a doubt, the slow abolishment of slavery happened as Christianity took hold in the Roman Empire. That the handicapped, the poor, children, women, the slave, all were elevated by the message of Christianity. Which actually, there are a few passages in the Bible that there are bankruptcy law that look like it's endorsing slavery. So there are definitely some confusing small passages that I think I could easily explain to you. But if you zoom out to the big part of the Bible, the entire Old Testament is built on one major event, the Passover. God's delivering of people from slavery. So though there's a few passages that are a little unclear, the major teaching of the entire Old Testament is about how God brought his people out of Egyptian slavery and he wants them to liberate others. In fact, our liberty bell today, it has a verse from Leviticus on it, proclaim liberty to all the land out of the book of Leviticus. Jesus, when he was born, gets 12 years old, and his parents take him to Passover, a celebration of how God delivers from slavery. There's an entire book in the New Testament called Philemon, where there's a Christian man who has a Christian slave. The Christian slave escapes. Paul talks to the Christian slave, says you need to follow the law and go return yourself to him, but I want to talk to your master. You're a Christian now. He's a Christian. Christians don't think you should own people. Here's what he says. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. That's the slave. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave. We don't think in terms of slave, but more, like a, more than a slave. I want you to make him a brother. And so Christianity began to transform, not from the top down, from the bottom up, as each person said, no more owning people, no more not valuing people. Everyone is made in God's sight. Think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., William Wilberforce, these are the three great abolitionists of our time. And you know what book they said inspired them to get rid of slavery? The Bible. Martin Luther King Jr. named himself after Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther, who tried to get the Bible into everybody's hand to liberate people, to think for themselves, to challenge systems. Martin Luther King Jr., he used the Bible. Read his letters from the Alabama jail. He traces Christianity as the impact for why he's doing what he's doing to abolish slavery. William Wilberforce, greatest abolitionist in England, and he would say he had a conversion experience with Jesus, and that's why he talked people into a, a sugar, um, a sugar uh, blockade initially and then ultimately to abolishing slavery altogether because of his belief in Jesus and the Bible. So again, has Christianity been a source for good? The kindness and care shown in the manger by God has inspired kindness and care in the name of the manger through medicine and compassion and human rights all through history. So what does it look like for us? What does it look like us for us to keep Christmas well? Remember, I told you it's been 200 years since we've really thought about Christmas and the Christmas spirit in this way, thanks to Charles Dickens. The first thing I think Christmas challenges us to do is to look at your own inner Scrooge. I told you when I was in high school, I, I was a grade school rather, I played a Christmas present. I got to dance with Scrooge. I think in one sense we all dance with our own inner Scrooge at times. <laughs> it's easy to be generous to myself, but am I, am I that generous to others? Am I that patient with my spouse? Am I that kind to my neighbor, to my stranger? Do I have a tendency to ostracize people based on my political differences rather than seeing them all as mattering? Here's what Charles Dickens says of Scrooge. It was always said of Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well. What does it look like for you to keep Christmas well? And Charles Dickens would tell you that the place you get the power to do that comes from the Bible. Here's one of his quotes about his writing. I most strongly and affectionately impress upon you the priceless value of the New Testament. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ taught to his disciples and to us. It's Charles Dickens. You want to know where the power comes to transform that inner Scrooge in you? Whether it's the selfish version of you, the I lose my temper version of you, the I'm not as generous as I should be, I'm not as patient as I should be. He would say, it looks to Jesus. Keep Christmas, Christmas, the Mass of Christ, well. Maybe this Christmas you want to say, God, I, I want you to transform my inner Scrooge. There's just some areas I need to grow in. There's some areas I'm not treating people with compassion and kindness the way I should. Number two, look for your tiny Tim. I don't know what your tiny Tim is. One of the things about that story that grabbed us all is this little character named Tiny Tim. You might have a particular passion. Maybe, maybe you want to work with us in our work we do every year through, through Happy Church, one of the poorest places in the country in Appalachia that we go down and we help with. Maybe you want to go on a, a trip with back-to-back or send your kids to back-to-back to work with orphans all around the world like we do each year. Maybe you're a doctor or you're a nurse or you want to come as a support team with our Belize medical partners this year. We send and give out millions of dollars worth of health care to those in Belize, the poorest of poor in village clinics. Maybe your tiny Tim's going to be taking a trip this year. Maybe it's going down to City Gospel. Several times a month we go down and we work with the homeless. Many with addictions. You can kind of build into their other programs and help those with addictions, help to find a job and get out of generational poverty. What is your tiny Tim? Or maybe it just means treating the people in your family with a little bit more like their tiny Tim, having more compassion, not be so rough on them, being more compassionate and kind to the people around you. Or maybe number three, it means to give to and through Horizon. One of the ways you can find your tiny Tim is to grab our giving tree. Our giving tree just has ornaments on it, but all the different things we're giving all through the year. Maybe you want to grab one of those ornaments. It's got the instructions on it. You say, you know what, I want to have compassion to somebody in need in my time, in my space, in this place. So use our giving tree as a tool to do that. 
Maybe you want to give to and through Horizon. Maybe this time of year you're thinking about your own giving and you give financially in many ways. I encourage you to think about Horizon as a place to give. Maybe you're encouraged by the way that we put on great children's programs and comedy nights and the services we do, but ultimately the way we're trying to take this kingdom that God has, we're trying to spread it, we're trying to inspire others to, to live out this new priority system throughout the day, throughout the world, throughout your year. What does it look like for all of us to do unto others what God's done to us? You know, when, when the angel came and appeared to Mary and Joseph, she said, you shall name his name Jesus, but you'll also be called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel simply means God with us. And wherever Christianity spread, people said, I've never seen anything like that. It's like a light has come into the darkness. It's like God is here. But not like Zeus God, and not like Demeter God, and not like Dionysus God, a selfless, loving, elevating God. Emmanuel.